0: 40th episode of the podcast F4. We're calling it that since it's easier to say than food and frightening film fanatics. Before we get started, a few disclaimers. Heavy spoilers ahead. Turn back now if you haven't seen these movies. This week we're talking about a really big franchise. It's Hellraiser. There are 10 movies total in the series and I'm not sure how many of these the average horror viewer has watched. I think they're familiar with, um, you know, the name Hellraiser and can recognize a picture of Pinhead and probably know a few of his quotes, but that's probably about it. I'm not sure how many people have actually slogged through all ten movies like I did. AV Club did a review back when there were only nine Hellraiser movies, and it's entitled Watching All Nine Movies is an Exercise in Masochism. And I got to say, I think they're right. I watched all of them within a week and a half, and it was pretty rough. But I made it through, and here I am. So let's talk about uh, the usual structure, which is the cast and crew of the movies, and then talk about Rotten Tomatoes, the plot, um, and then there's a bunch of trivia. Since this is uh, has 10 movies, this is uh, probably a much longer podcast than our typical one. But here we go. The first Hellraiser from 1987 is based on a short story called The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker, and he is very prolific and has done tons of all sorts of things. Books, uh, comic books, paintings, illustrations, video games, as well as movies, and some of the other movies you might remember include Candyman, which we talked about in the podcast in episode 23, Nightbreed, Lords of Illusion, Midnight Meat Train, just to name a few, And besides writing the short story, he also wrote the screenplay and directed this movie. It was his first time directing, and I think he did a really good job considering it was his first time. The movie stars Sean Chapman as Frank, Andrew Robinson as Larry, Claire Higgins as Julia, and Ashley Lawrence as Kirstie. And notice that's Kirstie and not Christy. Uh, Doug uh, Doug Bradley plays Pinhead. And it was produced by Christopher Figg. Music was by Christopher Young. And even though you might not know his name, you probably know a bunch of the music he's created because he's done a bunch of other horror movies, such as um, Drag Me to Hell, Urban Legend, Pet Cemetery, Species... um, Let's see, what else? Uh, Sister. And the... The movie was distributed by entertainment film distributors and filmed in the UK. So that's the First Hellraiser. The name of the second movie is Hellbound Hellraiser 2 from 1988, so one year later. It was directed by Tony Randall and he served as editor in the first movie. Clive Barker again wrote the script and he uh, worked on it with Peter Atkins. Clive also served as the executive producer. Christopher Figg and David Boren were the producers, regular producers. And then the movie, in terms of cast returning, is Claire Higgins as Julia, Ashley Lawrence as Kirstie, Sean Chapman as Uncle Frank, and Doug Bradley as Pinhead, and he also plays Captain Elliot Spencer. Oliver Smith again returns, and he plays the skinless Frank, and also a small part is a character named Mr. Browning. New uh, this time around are Kenneth Cranham, who plays Dr. Chenard, and Imogene Borman, who plays Tiffany. Music, again, was by Christopher Christopher Young. Uh, The movie was distributed by New World Pictures, and it was filmed in the UK and the US. The third movie is called Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, from 1992, so four years after the second movie. It's distributed... Um, well, let me do that at the end. So it's directed by Anthony Hickox and written again by Peter Adkins and Tony Randall, directed again by Lawrence uh, Mortroff, Clive Barker served as executive producer again, and Doug Bradley is back as Pinhead and Captain Elliot Spencer. New faces include Kevin Bernhard as J.P. Monroe slash Pinhead, Terry Farrell, you may remember her as Dax from Star Trek, she plays Joey Summerskill, Ken Carpenter plays Doc Fisher slash camerahead. and Pamela Marshall plays Terry slash Dreamer. There's also a Super Brief cameo in here by Ashley Lawrence. Music this time around was by Randy Miller, and the show was distributed and produced by Miramax and its division, which is uh, one of its divisions called Dimension Films. And this movie was filmed in the U.S. So that's three. Four is called Hellraiser Bloodline. And this is where they stopped putting numbers in the movies. I'll continue to list what number they are because that's how I keep track of them. But here on out, there's no numbers. So this one came out in 1996. It's four years later. It was originally directed by Kevin Yeager, but he is credited as Alan Smithy. When the film was released, and we'll talk about what that means a little bit later. And Joe Chappelle also worked on it, but he's uncredited. Chappelle previously did um, directed Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. It was again written by Peter Atkins, produced by Nancy Stone. Bruce Ramsey is Philip LaMarchand. Um, he plays three roles. So, Philippe LaMarchand, John Merchant, and Dr. Paul Merchant and Valentina Vargas is Angelique, Doug Bradley returns again as Pinhead, music this time is by David Licht, and distributed and produced again by Miramax and Dimension, and again filmed in the U.S. Next up, the fifth movie from 2000, so four years after the fourth. This one is called Hellraiser Inferno, and note this is the first direct-to-home video movie. So, everything after this is direct-to-home video. So, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Um, this is directed by Scott Derrickson. And he also has done a bunch of other movies. I'm sure you've seen such as Sinister, Doctor Strange, and a bunch of other stuff. It was written by Paul Harris Boardman and Scott Derrickson. Produced by W.K. Border and Joel Sasson, Starring, again, Doug Bradley. Craig Sheffer as Detective Joe Thorne, and you may remember him as the lead character from Nightbreed, Nicholas Taturi as uh, his uh, partner, Detective Tony, and James Remar, who you probably may not know his name, but he's been in tons of stuff, one of which was Dexter. He played Dexter's father, Harry Morgan. Music is by Walter Wizzora, and it's distributed, again, by Miramax and Dimension, and again, filmed in the U.S. The sixth movie, let's see, let me go down here. Oh, if you hear the cat, uh, something strange in the background, it's just the cat who wants to spend quality time all of a sudden. So, the sixth movie is Hellraiser Hellseeker, directed by Rick Boda. Written by Carl Dupree and Tim Day, produced by Michael Leahy and Ron Schmidt, starring again Doug Bradley, Dean Winters, William S. Taylor's Detective Lang, and Ashley Lawrence makes a cameo here and is in two scenes. Clive Barker had uncredited input in the third act, and this is the last Hellraiser movie uh, he will have any involvement whatsoever in. Music this time was by Steven Edwards and distributed again by Miramax and Dimension and filmed in the U.S. Now, the seventh movie. The seventh movie is Hellraiser Deader from 2005, so three years after the sixth movie, and it has one of the most unusual titles in uh, the franchise. Again, directed by, Mike, by Rick Boda, written by Neil Marshall Stevens and Tim Day, produced by David Greenhouse and Ron Schmidt, starring again Doug Bradley, Carrie Wurr as Amy Klein, Paul Reese as Cult Leader Winner, and music was by Henning Leuner, and again, no surprise, distributed by Miramax Dimension, And but this time it was filmed in Romania. So, 7, just so you know, 7 and 8 were filmed back-to-back, and both were filmed in Romania. So, 8 also has a 2005 uh, release date, and all the same people, which I will not read again, participated in that. New is the cast, including Lance Hendrickson, which she's been in tons of stuff, including Aliens, Henry Cavill, who played Superman and Man of Steel, Catherine Winnick, who played Lagertha in... Vikings, and Carrie Payton, who in this movie plays Derek, but he's Ezekiel in The Walking Dead. Doug Bradley, of course, is already back, also back, and music is by Lars Anderson again distributed by Miramax and Dimension. Next up, the ninth movie, Hellraiser Revelations, produced in 2011, so six years after the eighth movie, directed by Victor Garcia, Written by Jerry by Gary J. Tunnencliffe, and we'll be talking a lot more about him later. Produced by Aaron Achman and Joel Sasan. Doug Bradley does not appear as pinhead in this movie. Starring Stephen Brand, Nick Everson, Tracy Faraway, Sebastian Roberts. Music by Frederick Widman, distributed by Dimension, and filmed in the U.S. Note, I'm probably going to say this a number of other times, but... This movie was a rush job because Miramax had to produce another film within a certain period of time or the rights to the franchise would revert back to Clive Barker. So it really was just a, a rush job all around. The good news is is um, the other movies, so let's see, 5, 6, 7, and 8 were all just retreads of movies that Miramax had laying around in the movie vault, and then they threw the pinheads in there. 9 and 10, they actually have an original script. Um, so that's 9. 10 is the last thing that we've seen so far, Hellraiser Judgments from 2018. Seven years later, written again by Gary J. Tenencliff and produced by Michael Leahy, starring Damon Carey, Randy Wayne, Alexandra Harris... Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street makes a very brief cameo. And Paul T. Taylor. Music was by Devin Johnson, produced by Dimension and distributed by Lionsgate Films and filmed in the U.S. Where to watch these movies? Voodoo has all ten movies. The only one that I think isn't free is number two. Shudder has one and two and the documentary Leviathan, one and two. Uh, Tubi has one, two, nine, and ten for free. Amazon has all ten movies as well as the Leviathan documentaries. Uh, the only thing that's free to Prime members though is the first movie. The others are like four bucks each. Uh, Hulu only has the first one. Netflix doesn't have any, and the other spots have them available at a fee. So YouTube, Google Play, and iTunes usually for four dollars each. Now, Rotten Tomato scores. The first Hellraiser critics gave it a 69, audiences gave it a 73. This is the highest rating for either critics or for audiences. Hellraiser two critics gave it a 56, audiences gave it a 58. Hellraiser three critics gave it a 41, audiences gave it a 35. Hellraiser four critics gave it a 31, audiences gave it 37. Inferno, which is the first of the direct-to-home video movies, not rated by critics. Audiences gave it a 35. Hellraiser Hellseeker, um, critics gave it a 0, and audiences gave it a 33. This is the lowest rating by critics in the franchise. Uh, Debtor, critics gave it a 17. Audiences gave it a 26. Hellworld, Critics gave it a 20. Audiences gave it a 23. Revelations was not rated by critics, and audiences gave it a 6%. Yes, that's a single digit, 6, and that's the lowest rating by audiences in the franchise. And Hellraiser Judgment had a bit of a rebound, with critics giving it a 50%, audiences giving it a 27%. So I'd like to stop now and uh, play you some music from Hellraiser, So this one is from the first album by Christopher Young, and this is entitled Cinnabites. So hope you enjoyed that. Um, next up, the plot. So the series focuses on a puzzle box that opens a gateway to hell where the Cenobites, and you can think of them probably as demons, reside. They were previously human, but now they harvest human souls for experimentation. They say that they bring the ultimate experiences in pleasure and pain, but it turns out to be mostly pain and not much pleasure. They like to wear leather S&M outfits and they bring lots and lots of chains with them and they like to hook people with the chains and they are also partial to making entrances with lots of fog. So that's the basic overview. And then for the individual movies, what I'm going to do is read the IMDb synopsis first and then just my notes on each movie. So the first Hellraiser, IMDb says, An unfaithful wife... Uh, encounters the zombie of her dead lover, and the uh, demonic Cenobites are pursuing him after he escaped his their sadomasochistic world. Let me try that again. An unfaithful wife encounters the zombie of her dead lover. The demonic Cenobites are pursuing him after he escapes his sadomasochistic underworld. And then when the movie starts, it's basically three people in a house. So it's Kirstie Cotton, and her father, Larry, and her stepmother, Julia, and they move back into their ancestral home. And previously, Larry's brother, Frank, had been living there, but he's disappeared. What they don't know is that Frank had purchased a puzzle box uh, somewhere far away, and it opens a portal to hell and releases the Cenobites. Frank is still around. He's, like, under the floorboards in the attic, I think, um... So what happens is Larry goes upstairs, he accidentally cuts himself, he spills some blood on the floor, and then you see Frank resurrecting from, I don't know what you would call it, just a a little part of something. Um, So he resurrects, but he resurrects and he doesn't have any skin. So Julia sees him, at first she's really scared, and then we learn that Julia previously had a steamy secret relationship with her husband's brother and so Frank talks her into killing a number of men so that he can use their skin to make himself a bodysuit and at first she's resistant and then she ends up going with it so he drags them all back to the house she hits him in the head with a hammer and then Frank sucks the life out of him so Kirsty eventually figures out what's going on she opens the puzzle box and the Cenobites are ready to take her to hell, but instead she tries to bargain with them and tells them that Frank uh, escaped them and that they should take him instead of her. So uh, you should never bargain with the Cenobite, but um, they seem okay with the trade for now. And in the end, what happens is Christy survives, Kirsty survives, everybody else dies. So Larry, Julia, and Frank die. Um, Kirstie solves the puzzle box, closes it back, and then escapes the house with her boyfriend. Oh, the puzzle box is also referred to at some point as the Lament Configuration and the La Marchand box. So you'll hear those. Um, and then at the end, after the house is burnt down, Kirstie and her boyfriend uh, are outside. She throws the puzzle box into a fire, a homeless guy shows up that we saw earlier, and he reaches into the fire and grabs the box and then catches on fire. And we're not sure what he's doing. But then what happens is he turns into a dragon and uh, it's actually a dragon skeleton and flies away. So that was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. Um, so no explanation at that. That was the end of the movie. Also, I would mention on this movie, don't expect to see the Cenobites through the whole movie. They only appear at the very end. So that's the first Hellraiser. Then the second Hellraiser, called Hellbound Hellraiser 2, IMDB says, Kirsty is brought to an institution after the death of her family, where the occult obsessive head resurrects Julia and unleashes the Cenobites once again. At first, we think Dr. Shenard, who's the head of the institution, is trying to help Kirstie but nope, he's not. He has been heavily involved in the occult for some time, has these puzzle boxes all over the place. He keeps a bunch of people in the basement that he's torturing, and he has this girl Tiffany, who's supposedly really good with puzzles, that he's trying to get her to open the puzzle box. So he resurrects Julia and unleashes the Cenobites on purpose. Then Kirstie ventures into hell to try to save her father, Larry, because she heard Larry say that he's in hell. Um, So all of them, everybody ends up in hell. So Dr. Chenard becomes a cenobite and ends up floating around. He has this big tube thing attached to his head, and he floats around through hell. And then we see the other demons chasing Kirstie and Tiffany around. And, of course, Julia is there and Kirstie runs into Uncle Frank and then learns again that it was Frank and not um, her father that was in hell. So what happens is eventually they're able to escape again, and um, this happens because Kirsty puts on Julia's skin and saves Tiffany. Now, this is the second time we've seen this, the first movie we saw, uh, Frank put on Larry's skin. This time we've seen Julia, uh, Kirstie put on Julia's skin. The interesting thing about this movie is that I guess Dr. Chenard's uh, idea all along was to take over the Cenobites um, in hell, but he ends up killing them fairly easily. So the Cenobites that we see, once he kills them, they revert to their human form. So we have Pinhead, Deep Throat, Butterball, and Chatterer. Um, yeah, I also want to mention, uh, we see the Lord of Hell, which is Leviathan, and he's a big, giant, uh, diamond looking thing that once like reconfigured looks like the puzzle box. So, we're not sure exactly what he is, if there's someone inside it, anything like that. The third movie, Hell on Earth 1992, IMDb says, an investigative reporter must send the newly unbound. Pinhead and his legions back to hell. As you recall at the end of um, the second movie, Pinhead somehow got separated from his human self. So we have Captain Elliot Spencer, who is originally his human self, and then we have uh, regular Pinhead. So Elliot Spencer has the good side, Pinhead has the dark side, and Pinhead at the end of two was encased in a thing called the Tower of Souls. It looked pretty dated in two, but it looks much better here. And so a guy who owns a club buys the Tower of Souls, takes it back to his bedroom. Some blood accidentally gets sprayed on it, and then you see Pinhead's face appear, and he tells the guy he needs to bring him more and more people so he can escape the tower and uh, be released into this realm. Meanwhile, a reporter named Joy Summerskill knows something is up when she sees uh, some strange things happening at the hospital and starts to investigate. And that's pretty much the plot. She eventually goes to the club where Pinhead has killed everyone and created some new Cenobites because, as we saw at the end of 2, all the rest of them are dead. So the new Cenobites he creates are pretty weird. They are Pistonhead, Camerahead, Barbie, who's a bartender who breathes fire, Dreamer, who used to be the girl Terry that um, Joey was trying to help out, and CD Head, and CD Head actually shoots CDs out of his head to kill people. So at some point, the human, Elliot, and Pinhead are reunited, and Joey manages to send Pinhead back to hell and... What she does after that is so no one can el- else can get a hold of the puzzle box, she takes it and puts it in some cement in a building that's under construction. Then we see a flash forward, and it turns out after the building was constructed, it bears a striking resemblance to the box. And we're off to the next movie, Bloodline. And this is number four for anyone keeping track. So in the 22nd century, a scientist attempts to right the wrongs His ancestor created the puzzle box that opened the gates of hell and unleashed Pinhead and his Cinnabite legions. So the movie covers members of the La Marchand family in three time periods. In 1976, the French La Marchand made the original puzzle box for a wealthy benefactor who uses it to bring Angelique from hell, and she's the daughter of Leviathan. In present day, middle La Marchand is an architect And he's terrorized by Angelique, who's been alive all of these years, and Pinhead. And they want him to build a box that will open the portal to hell once and for all because they're tired of just showing up when they're summoned. So they kidnap his son in order for him to force him to do that. But he tricks them in the last minute. And then Pinhead and Angelique are pulled back into hell uh, before he gets his head sliced off. And then in the last time period is 2127, and the third La Marchand, uh, who's now a doctor or PhD, tries to rid the universe of the Cenobites once and for all, and he's doing this aboard a space station. So, uh, more details on the specifics of those when we do trivia, but before we go over the next movie, here is the theme music to the first Hellraiser movie from Christopher. Yum! So I hope you enjoy. up Hellraiser Inferno, which is the fifth movie, and this is, again, the first direct-to-home video movie. IMDB says, a shady police detective becomes embroiled in a strange world of murder, sadism, and madness after being assigned an undercover investigation against a madman known only as the Engineer. Uh, Again, this was a pre-existing detective story that was retrofitted with Pinhead. And you're going to find this. This is the fifth, so you're going to find this in five, six, seven, and eight. And then nine and ten were original scripts. Um, note the engineer in this movie is not the same as the engineer in the first movie. Um, they just have the same name. Um, so as usual, people die. Uh, the detective opens a puzzle box. He sees a number of cinnabite creatures. Pinhead appears for a very short period of time to tell him that the killer that he is looking for is, in fact, himself. And I'm not sure how that works because he's looking for someone who's cutting off children's fingers. And Pinhead says the child is him. So, and that his older... So the child was the, old, the good side of him, like we talked about a little bit earlier. And it's kind of yin and yang. And the older... um evil side of himself killed the child and now he is stuck in hell and must repeat the events of the day over and over again so this was a lot of build up for not much payoff in my book and obviously it doesn't really make any sense at all so that's five six hell seeker is imdb a shady businessman attempts to piece together the details of the car crash that killed his wife rendered him an amnesiac, and leaves him in possession of a sinister puzzle box that summons monsters. So this is the last Hellraiser movie to feature input by Barker in any shape. In this, he was given access to the work print and asked for his feedback. Um, This movie is hard to follow because it's told in a series of flashbacks in Trevor's mind. So we don't know if he's recovering memories, if he's schizophrenic, If he opened the puzzle box and he's doomed. But in the end, we find out what really happened, and that is that Trevor had given the puzzle box to Kirstie as an anniversary present. And this is the world's worst worst anniversary present given what she has dealt with previously. So she probably should have just divorced him right then. So she says, You want me to open the box? And she's very angry about it, so she opens the box. And then Pinhead again comes and wants to take her, but she again bargains with him, as she always does, and she says she will give him five souls in place of hers. So it's the three women that Trevor was cheating on her and having sex with, his co-worker who was in on the inheritance scam to take her money, and finally Trevor himself. It turns out that Trevor's been dead the whole movie, and he indeed did drown... When the car plunged into the river at the in the very first scene of the movie, and that we thought he had lived and Kirsty had died, instead it's actually he died and Kirsty lives, and then Kirsty um, lives to fight. It's another day. So that's Hellseeker, Deader, Hellraiser Seven. A journalist uncovers the underground group who can bring back the dead and slowly becomes drawn into that world. That's what IMDB says. So, the journalist is named Amy, and she is recruited by a strange cult leader who, like we said, can bring people back to life. His name is Winter, and apparently only certain people in the world can open the puzzle box, but what we've seen up to this point, it seems like everybody and his brother can open it, so go figure. Um... So, he recruits her. Apparently, she has to willingly die. He will resurrect her. She will solve the puzzle box. It turns out he's a descendant of the original puzzle maker, Larmachan. And I guess he wants to take over hell. That's what it seems like anyway. Um, In the end, Pinhead comes for everyone. And Amy escapes hell by stabbing herself. Uh, again i'm not sure how these things work because i thought if you stabbed yourself you were dead then you would go to hell but in some of these later movies it is you can keep from going to hell by killing yourself so like i said some of these don't make sense um the eighth movie hell world imdb says gamers playing an mmorp based on the Hellraiser franchise, find their lives endangered after being invited to a rave, the host of which intends to show them the truth behind the Cenobite mythos. So five friends go to play Hellworld for old times' sake, and this is several years after a fifth friend, Adam, committed suicide because of the game. So this is basically a Scream-esque type uh, teen slasher movie. So Lance Henderson uh, welcomes the group to the exclusive Hellworld party, and it's being held at a house um, built by La Marchand. But I don't know which one, because the first one was just Toymaker. Maybe it was the second one, who was an architect. Anyway, the kids start dying one by one, so typical teen slasher movie. But in the end, the twist is the host is actually Adam's father, who's seeking revenge for his son's death, and his anger is definitely uh, misplaced because he never spent any time with his son anyway, and that's why none of the rest of them knew who he was. Um, What the kids are seeing is hallucinations caused by a drug he slipped them, and they have actually been buried in coffins in the yard for several days, and they all have phones placed in there with them so he can talk to them and suggest to them what they think is reality. I'm not sure how the batteries on those old uh, Nokia phones lasted that long, but whatever. And in the end, it suggested that the ghost of Adam call the police and they arrived just in time to save Chelsea and Jake. Everybody else died. Elsewhere... Lance opens the box and Pinhead and two Cenobites arrive and they slice him into pieces, which is a a really cool visual. It's one of those uh, Resident Evil type scenes where like just layers of the person, they get sliced and layers of them just slide off of their body. So that's a fun visual. And then Chelsea and Jake um, are deciding which city they want to move to. And while they're driving down the road, they get a phone call and it's Lance And then he appears in the backseat of the car, and then he grabs the steering wheel. And then he's gone. So, who knows what that means, since I thought in the previous scene Lance was going to hell with the Cenobites. I don't think the Cenobites sent Lance back to get the other two, but who knows. The ninth movie, Revelations. IMDb says, two friends discover a puzzle box in Mexico, which unleases Cenobite Pinhead. See, even IMDb doesn't want to say much about this movie. Um, As I said previously, these last two movies were released uh, just because Miramax and Dimension were trying to make sure they didn't lose their rights to the franchise so they didn't revert back to Clive Barker. So this one was an absolute rush job and was done on a very low budget, which we'll talk about later. So in the story... Um, The two guys, two young guys that are going to Mexico are named Steve and Nico. And what happens is they go to Mexico to have some good times and then they disappear. And we see and found footage um, that Nico actually opened the box. Um, And then several years later, Steve and Nico's family is still getting together for like dinner. uh, But they don't talk about what's happened to their kids because they don't know. They just disappeared. And then... Stephen shows up uh, at one of these dinner parties several years later and they're trying to figure out what's happening and he says they're after me. Uh, Emma is the sister of Stephen and girlfriend of Nico and then one thing leads to another. Stephen kills Nico's father and shoots his own father. He makes Emma open the puzzle box and surprise it's not really Stephen but it's Nico wearing Stephen's skin. So it was the same thing as... This is the third time we've seen this. The first one was Frank wearing Larry's skin. The second one was Kirsty wearing Julia's skin. And in this one, um, Stephen at some point refused to bring uh, hookers to Nico so that he could suck the life out of, more of their skin. So he just took Stephen's skin. So... <coughs> um. Pinhead shows up. Pinhead has some with him that we're calling fake Pinhead, uh, not Doug. And he's like a smaller version of Pinhead and seems to cut skin off of all the victims to put on his face. So we'll call him Pinhead Jr. And then Nico tries to bargain as they always do with Pinhead. He says, take Emma instead. Pinhead says, no, Emma will come back to us on her own at some point. And then Stephen's father shoots Nico. thus depriving the Cenobites of him. Again, as I said previously, I don't understand this. And so they say they have to take somebody. So they instead take Stephen's mother after killing Nico's mother. And the uh, Pinhead Jr. turns out to be the real Stephen. So we finally figure out what happened to him. And the last movie, finally is judgment imdb says detective sean and david carter are on the case to find a gruesome serial killer terrorizing the city joining forces with detective christine egerton they dig deeper into the spiraling matrix of horror that may not be of this world so pinhead and his crew think due to the advances in technology no one is interested in solving puzzle boxes anymore when they can just watch porn on the internet all the time. So they hatch a new plan. They send the deviants typewritten letters and lure them to an abandoned house. Mm, Not sure anybody reads uh, typewritten letters anymore, but that's what they said. So there's someone at the house called the auditor, and his face is all cut up, and he types out the person's sins on a typewriter using their own blood after they're lured to the house. Then a big heavy guy called the Assessor, eats the pages of their confession after sprinkling it with child's tears. He then pukes up the results into a sink, which leads to a trough where three almost-naked ladies, called the Jury, put their hands in the vomit to determine the person's guilt. If found guilty, and apparently they're always found guilty, the person will be cleaned, i.e. licked, and I'm not sure what else, by some women, um, and then they are sent to the butcher who unleashes the surgeon, I think, out of his body. And then the surgeon slices off the person's skin. So that's the basic, basically, what they're doing. So in the other storyline, story our three cops are searching for a serial killer called the Preceptor, and he kills people based on the Ten Commandments. So the older Carter brother named Sean. He ends up at the first house, and when the assessor eats his skin, he chokes and dies. The jury dies, and then I think the cleaning ladies die. So he must have done something really bad. Then something happens that we've not seen in this series yet. An angel appears um, to the auditor. her name is jo- Joville, and says, they must send Sean. they must let Sean go. And they don't want to let Sean go, because they're like, he's guilty. But she said, you have to let him go. So they reluctantly let him go. Well, no, they don't reluctantly let him go. He's about to be uh, attacked. He's last seen with the cleaning ladies. And then once they die, he takes a puzzle box and runs off. So they never actually let him go. So they continue, the three cops continue to look for the killer... Um, and then at some point Sean and Christine find the warehouse where the preceptor does his thing. There are photos of all the victims on the wall. The last one is covered by a cloth, and when Christine pulls the cloth off of it, it's no surprise that it is David Carter and Sean's wife. Sean is, in fact, the preceptor, So, no shock at all, because given the earlier judgment scene, we knew he had done something really, really bad. So, Sean summons Pinhead. He wants to trade his brother and wife for his soul. And they chain him up, but they're like, no deal. And then the angel lady comes back, and she says, God wants Sean returned to Earth, basically because the good can't exist without evil. It's bad for business. So Sean is sent back to the warehouse where he is promptly shot dead by uh, girl cop Christine. And Pinhead at this point can't leave well enough alone. And since Sean is gone, he changed the angel and tortures her. It's a really bad idea, dude. And then she again recites the Bible verse that Frank said in the first movie, which is Jesus wept. And he said that right before he was pulled uh, and his head exploded, and then same thing happens to her. Now, I don't think you can kill angels, but whatever. That's what happened. And then the aud- auditor suggests to Pinhead that, number one, he shouldn't have done that, uh, like, duh. And then, number two, that there is a way to punish him, even though he's been in hell all those years, and that is banishment. So flash to a homeless Pinhead. Minus the pins, he's not a sin bite anymore. He's on Earth screaming about being abandoned. So, bad move, Pinhead. And that's the end of that scene. But you want to make sure you watch through the post-credits because uh, after the credits start, then the auditor, uh, it says, um, title card says Germany. So, I guess two Mormon missionaries show up at a house in Germany and then the auditor opens the door and lures them inside. So that's kind of a setup for movie number 11, should that ever happen. So next up, let's have some more music. This is the soundtrack from Hellraiser 2 called Leviathan, and again, that's by Christopher. Next up, trivia. We got quite a bit of trivia, so uh, I divided it into first general uh, Hellraiser trivia and then the specific movies. So, uh, Stephen King helped launch the horror career of Clive Barker, saying, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. Um, there aren't numbers on all of these movies, since, as we said, uh, many of them are direct-to-home video, but the budget of the first movie was $1 million and had a box office of $20 million uh, that I've read in some places, others say $14.6 million. And then the second and third movies made over $12 million each. The fourth had a budget of $4 million and made $9.3 million. And then we'll talk about some of the later movies in a second. Here's something interesting. Julia was originally intended to be the villain of the story, but the audience reacted so strongly to Pinhead that they went with him instead. I definitely would have liked to seen what a franchise looked like with Julia as the main villain. I think that definitely would have been interesting. The movies were originally directed by New World before they went bankrupt, and then, of course, they ended up as Miramax, which is uh, was owned by the Weinstein brothers, including Harvey Weinstein and uh, their Dimitri, dimension film division so no need to say what's going on with Harvey Weinstein these days I think you probably already know um yeah there's an excellent podcast called the Hellraiser podcast by Peter and Phil and they're out of the UK and it goes through the Hellraiser franchise and currently 55 episodes so they include interviews they have discussions of Clive's books that have discussions of the comic books it's very extensive if you like Hellraiser I highly recommend it there's also some good review articles from Bloody Disgusting um that are in two parts so check out A Waste of Good Suffering the Hellraiser franchise so that's pretty good and then the runtime of these movies is very short The lowest is Revelations at 75 minutes, and I thought that a movie had to be 80 minutes long to be a feature-length movie, so I think maybe that's not counting the credits. Um, So that's the shortest one. The longest one is the second one, Hellbound, which only clocks in at 99 minutes. Now, these were much, much longer. One of these, as we said, was like three hours long before it had to be uh, cut down for size. Favorite quotes? I'll just hit the big ones. No surprise, most of these come from Pinhead. Um, to the question of who we are, Pinhead says in the first movie, we are explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. Then he says, no tears please, it's a good waste of suffering. Frank says to Kirsty twice, come to daddy, which is pretty icky. Uh, Jesus wept, as we already said, was said by Frank, uh, before he was killed in the first movie and also by the angel in the last movie. Uh, Pinhead says, we have such sights to show you. And Pinhead's most famous quote is probably, we'll tear your soul apart. He also says, the box, you opened it, we came. And then Julia says to Kirsty in the second movie, they changed the rules of the fairy tale. I'm no longer just the wicked stepmother. I'm also the evil queen. So come on, take your best shot, Snow White. So that was a good scene. Uh, and then Pinhead says, um, it's not hands that call us, it is desire. And that's. Um, why Pinhead is talking about Tiffany open the box, but she really had no desire to open the box. It was for uh, the head of the psychiatric hospital. And last one, Pinhead says, your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Uh, Cenobite, I thought that the word Cenobite was made up, but actually it is a real word, and it means a member of a monastic community. Uh, in the Clive Barker book, the Cenobites are referred to as a religious order called the Order of the Gash. Uh, Hellraiser is very Lovecraftian and that it doesn't provide uh, many explanations at times, uh, so he's definitely inspired by Lovecraft, and in turn, Hellraiser is believed to have been an influence on the movie Event Horizon. Also, check out hellraiser.fandom.com for an extensive list of Of all the Cenobites that appear in Barker's works, I'm going to go over the main ones in the movies in one second. And there's a fan video on YouTube called Hellraiser Origins. That's a very quick watch, and that's um, something that fans did, hoping they would make a full-length movie out of it. Um, And here's a list of the main Cenobites that appear in the movies. So, of course, number one is Pinhead. Also referred to as The Priest, The Pope of Hell... Played by Doug Bradley in all the movies except for the last two. In the books, he had female characteristics. Um, and in my book, he is hands down the best Cenobite. Uh, Butterball. Butterball, played by Simon Bamford, was in Hellraiser 1 and 2. He's a really, really big, fat, uh, Cenobite, and he likes to wear little tiny glasses. Chatterer. Uh, named Chatterer because his teeth, um... The skin around his mouth is pulled back and his teeth are exposed. Uh, He was played by Nicholas Vance. He was in Hellraiser 1, 2 and some of the later movies. He is revealed in 2 that he was actually a young boy before he became a Cenobite. So I'd be interested in the story to that one. Then there's a female Cenobite called Deep Throat. She has her throat exposed. She was originally played by Grace Kirby in the first movie and then Barbie Wilde uh, in the second movie. Then there's the Engineer. The Engineer is one of the few non-human Cenobites. He only appears in the first movie. Um, and at this point, he does look dated, but he's still very horrifying. He's this creature that climbs across the, uh, the, uh, the walls uh, when he's chasing Kirsty, So he's pretty scary. There's Leviathan. So Leviathan is the Lord of Hell, and he's a big diamond-looking thing that makes a foghorn sound that spells out God in Morse code, um, which I'll play a clip of in a second. So he's in Hellraiser 2. We don't know much about him at all, his origins, what he really is, if there's somebody inside that big diamond or not, uh, but we know that it can change its shape to resemble the puzzle box. So I would definitely be interested to hear more about Leviathan. Then there is the Cinebites created by Pinhead that I mentioned earlier. So in the third movie, Camera Head, CD Head, Barbie Head, not Barbie Head, plain old Barbie, Piston Head, Dreamer. And then there's Chatterer 2, and that's really Chatterer, but they finally gave the guy some eyes because he couldn't see where he was going. So it's Chatterer 2, then there's Chatterer 3, which is a modified version of the original. He appears in Hellseeker, uh, Hellworld, and Deader. There's a Chatter Beast, which is a dog that was created in the image of Chatterer. There is Torso, who's half a Chatterer, so just the top half of his body, and I believe that was uh, acted by a person who had no legs in real life. Uh, at least that's what I read someplace. There's Angelique, which is way up there on the list of best cenobites. She is the Princess of Hell and the Daughter of Leviathan, so we saw her in Bloodline. Then there's the Siamese twins, and that's a pair of, from the fourth movie, it's a pair of twin brothers who didn't want to uh, be separated from each other, so basically they forced them together, so they're attached now with a piece of squirrely, swirly skin between their faces, so they really are Siamese twins now. Then there's the Wire Twins, and those are two female Cenobites that like to torture men. They're in several movies, including the last one, Judgment. There's Bound, that's a female Cenobite that was in Hellseeker. She's later replaced by a male Cenobite called Bound 2. And he's in Dead or in Hellworld. There's Pseudo-Pinhead, which is in Revelations. And we already talked about him. I called him Pinhead Jr., uh, and he used to be Stephen uh, Crane. There's Stitch uh, that appears in Hellseeker, Deader, and Hellworld. There's little sister who only appears in Deader. And lastly, there's Spike who was cut from the films, but he was supposed to have a big spike through the middle of his head. So, what are the rules of the Cenobites? Um, they come when the puzzle box is solved. They come for people who beckon them because they have experienced every worldly sensation and want more. And later, this is changed, so then they just come for whoever solves the puzzle box, and at some point, the puzzle box just starts opening itself. Uh, For the Cenobites, pain equals pleasure. The two are indistinguishable. Screen time for Pinhead. Despite uh, Pinhead being the star of the franchise... He has surprisingly little screen time. So the guys that are over at the Hellraiser podcast actually time this. So I appreciate that because I definitely was not going to take the time to do it. Um, so they, let's see, the movie with the highest screen time for Pinhead is number three at 14 minutes, three seconds. And the movie with the lowest amount of screen time for him is eight. He's only in it for one minute and 15 seconds. So if you do the order of the movies, you got 2 minutes, 4 minutes, 14 minutes, 11 minutes, 2 minutes, 4 minutes, 2 minutes, 1 minute, 3 minutes, and 6 minutes. So it's amazing how little they actually appear in the movies. Uh, ranking the movies. Most people rank the movies basically in the order in which they were released. Uh, the last movie, Judgment, is typically bunched up, uh, bumped up higher than all of the Video on Demand movies. Some people say Hellbound, which is number two, is better than the original. Uh, Revelation is universally panned as the worst. And then the is still out, depending on who you talk to, about where Bloodline and Hellworld should be listed. Some people love it. Some people hate it. And now for another music clip. This one is from Hellraiser 3, so it's a theme from Hellraiser 3, and this time it is by Randy Miller. the individual movies Um, for trivia on those obviously the first ones have the most so first hellraiser movie many of barker's friends were involved in the first two movies including his high school friend doug bradley who's pinhead barker insisted on using trained actors for the cenobites instead of stuntmen which is what the studio wanted to do and that was a wise move because um I think it really gives you much more bang for your buck. Uh, The Hellbound Heart, as we know, was the original title of the short story. They wanted it for the original title of the movie, but it sounded like a romance. And the working title was Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave, but they considered that too sexual. So they ended up with Hellraiser. Uh, Some changes were made from the book. Uh, Christy became the daughter instead of just a friend of Larry, and she was also aged down. At the wrap party, for one, Doug Bradley was dismayed when no one recognized him. It's because they had never seen him without his pinhead makeup. Many people have commented on the poor quality of the special effects at the end of the movie. Barker says there was no money left for them, so was no money left at all um, in the budget at that point. So he and another guy animated the scenes by hand over a weekend. Apparently a lot of drinking was involved, so he surprised the scenes didn't turn out worse. Uh, Butterball and Chatterer had lines in the original script but couldn't speak due to the limitations of their makeup, so their lines were instead given to Deep Throat and Pinhead. Doug Bradley was offered his choice, and Doug Bradley, I think, goes to a lot of uh, Comic-Cons as well, Uh, or at least he used to. He was offered the choice of Moving Man Number 1, or Pinhead. He briefly considered doing Moving Man so that people could recognize his face, but wisely he settled on Pinhead. Clive Higgins hates horror movies and has never seen uh, either of the full movies that she's in, 1 and 2. The lead Cenobite, of course Pinhead, is referred to as a priest in the script, but his nickname of Pinhead stuck for obvious reasons, even though Barker didn't like it originally. Industrial band Coil, C-O-I-L, originally scored the movie at Barker's request, but the studio wanted someone they didn't have to pay royalties to, so they got uh, Christopher Young instead. The original Coil music can be found on two of their CDs, A Natural History 2 and the unreleased Themes from Hellraiser. And a number of the scenes had to be cut in order to get the movies down from X to R. And, of course, this was the 80s, so couldn't show too much. Um, It took six hours to apply Doug Bradley's makeup. Uh, Grace Kirby was the original female, sent about Deep Throat, but makeup took six hours, I'm sorry, three hours to apply for her and was very uncomfortable for her, she had back problems. So when she didn't return, Barbie Wilde took her place. She had a background in mime, which really helped her character. Lance Henderson was originally offered the role of Frank. He turned it down since he didn't want to be potentially in a number of sequels. He later returns in Hell World instead. And as we said, while some of the special effects seem very dated, such as The Engineer... The skinless corpses still look awesome, in my opinion. They're all bloody, and they glisten, very glistening, and they're very drippy. Um, I think they did an excellent job with those. Uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, New World Cinema greenlit the sequel, while the first was still in post-production. The budget for the movie was originally much larger, so when it was decreased, lots of cuts had to be made, and of course, New World, as we said before, later had to declare bankruptcy. Barker had extensive backstories for the Cenobites, although they weren't shown. He wanted to make sure audiences knew they were once human and were corrupted by their own vices. The script originally included Larry, played by Andrew Robinson, for two, but he didn't want to reprise the role, so they had to do a lot of hasty rewrites. This film, along with Titanic, holds the record for the number of times two characters continue to repeat each other's names, Kirsty and Tiffany. Uh, Nicholas Vance requested that Chatter have eyes because he couldn't see where he was going. Uh, the scene where he gets eyes was cut from the final movie, so that's a bit confusing for fans. The engineer was supposed to appear in this movie, but is also cut due to budget constraints. This movie is on Roger Ebert's most hated list. And the sound Leviathan makes in the fog spells out God in Morse code. I think I already said that, but just in case. And the scene of Julia emerging from the bed and crawling across the floor to suck the life out of that poor guy uh, in the hospital basement was excellent. I thought that was one of the best scenes of the movie. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth is the first Hellraiser movie to refer to the priest as Pinhead. In this, Pinhead is the only recurring character, save a cameo by Kirstie. Peter Jackson was offered this job of directing, and they had trouble getting a church in North Carolina to let them film the scene with a black mass in it, so they ended up, I think it happened to do... Um, just paint like stained glass windows and stuff in order to get around it. Tony Randall was supposed to direct, but was removed and replaced by Anthony Hickox. And former New World executive Larry Cuppin, uh, along with two other people, picked up the rights to the series during his bankruptcy. He then went on to found Transatlantic Entertainment with the hopes of producing, at that time, Hellraiser 3, Children of the Corn 2, One in Dead and Alive 2, etc., hellraiser for bloodline some say that the franchise died here and then limped along ever since uh, i would agree except for one film we're going to talk about a little bit later so barker tried to provide the ide- some ideas for this movie but the studio would not even let him on the set this movie was originally three hours long but was cut down to 80 minutes and as I said earlier, the puzzle box is also referred to as the Lammet Configuration, or La Marchand's box, and it was designed by Simon Sace. When Disney purchased Merrimax, they got a lot of slack because of the company's horror catalog because of Disney's squeaky clean image. Guillermo del Toro was offered the directing role, but declined. The movie takes place, as I said, in three time periods 1796, 1996, and 2127. The character, of the chatter beast, was supposed to be pieces of dog and a man that were stitched together after a car accident. Um, the script called for the show to be shot linear, linearly, but thanks to interference from Miramax, that didn't happen. This And much of the uh, original film was also cut. This left, the original director, who I said earlier, Kevin Yagle, took his name off of the film. So if you see a person named Alan Smithy listed as a director, that is the pseudonym that the Directors Guild of America uses for people who want to take their names off of films. And at the time of shooting four, this was supposed to be the final film in the series. Uh, Nope. There's much more to come. Number five, as we said before, the first direct-to-home video movie, the special effects cost $50,000. Uh, and Inferno was the first of the revamped scripts. There will be revamped scripts for five, six, seven, and eight. And these were just scripts that were laying around that Miramax and Dimension shoehorned uh, Pinhead and the Cenobites into uh, with not such good effects. And Inferno, one of the strangest things, obviously from the pre existing script, was at some point there is some cowboy kung fu. And no, I'm not kidding. I don't know what that has to do with anything. You just have to watch it to see what I mean. Uh, Hellraiser 6, uh, which is Hellseeker. This one, again, another retrofitted script where Pinhead is shoved into for a couple of minutes. Excuse me, Dean Winters, uh, plays Trevor, and he's been in lots of stuff. You may remember him as Mayhem in the Allstate commercials. He's in Law & Order, SVU, uh, Oz, etc. Dimension put a gag order on the cast and crew so they couldn't talk about this film. However, Ashley Lawrence broke it and talked about the film, saying that she only got paid enough for a down payment on a refrigerator. Sarah Jane Redman was originally slated to play Kirsty. If Ashley Lawrence didn't come back, when she did, they gave Sarah a different role, and that was as Trevor's boss. Um, yeah, at the company where he worked. Hellraiser debtor. Uh, this is probably gets the slack for the worst title out of any titles in the Hellraiser series, and again, is another retrofitted script. Um, this and Hellworld were again filmed at the same time and filmed back-to-back in Romania. Uh, Gary J. Tunnencliffe directed the second unit on this, and he had been doing special effects on Hellraiser, um, special effects and makeup since back in Bloodline. Um, I do think the woman that played uh, Amy, the main character, she gave it all she had. There just wasn't enough script here to work with. I think if it was tweaked, it uh, it could have been much better. Uh, Hell World, already said, filmed at the same time a debtor, filled in Romania. And it's another one that's a retrofitted script. Uh, it's a, really a teen slasher movie. Uh, Lance Henderson was originally offered the role of Frank in the first movie, but turned it down to appear in another great vampire movie, Near Dark. He happened to be in Romania at the same time, so they asked him if he would be interested in being in *Hellworld*, and he said yes. Revelations. An ad said this movie was, quote, from the mind of Clive Barker. Clive Barker completely disavowed the film with a colorful post on Twitter, which reads, Hello, my friends, I want to put on record the film out there using the word Hellraiser is no, is no fucking child of mine. I have nothing to do with the fucking thing. If they claim it's from the mind of Clive Barker, it's a lie. It's not even from my butthole. So I thought that was a quite colorful way of getting his point across. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the shooting schedule on this movie was 11 days. And as I said repeatedly, the only, way, only reason this movie was made is so the studio would do not lose the rights to the Hellraiser franchise. The two main characters in this movie, the two kids that go down to Mexico, their last names are Bradley, named after Doug Bradley, of course, and Craven, as in the Underworld Cravens, I assume. Uh, Unlike other video on-demand movies, this one was actually written as a Hellraiser movie to start with by Gary Tunnicliffe. Um... Doug refused to reprise his role after reading the rough draft and realized what a mess it was. They also planned to pay him very little, $5,000 only, Um, which was an insult. Uh, Instead, he was played by someone named Stephen Smith Collins, who is just not right for this role at all. His head is not shaped the right way. His voice is not. His voice is not Pinhead's voice. So, um, yeah. That definitely didn't work, and that's one of the reasons why Revelation is universally panned as the worst in the franchise. Next up, the last one, Judgment. Um, This movie, again, was only made in order not to lose the rights to the franchise. It also has another original script, this one again, by Gary Tunnicliffe and... Um, but the budget was very, very low. The budget was only $350,000 total. They made a box office of $405,000. Compare that to the budget of the original movie, which is done like 30 years earlier, had a $1 million budget, so they did not have much to work with. Paul T. Taylor plays Pinhead this time around, and he's a much better Pinhead. He's much closer to Doug Bradley in my book. The Auditor was originally a reimagined pinhead look. Um, And the auditor is played by... Gary. So I think he did a great job, and he's actually one of my favorite parts about the movie. Heather Langenkamp, who, of course, was in Nightmare on Elm Street, only appears for 45 seconds in the movie, but is given third billing in the credits. And I read somewhere it's because it's based on the popularity of the actress and that it's Wade... Uh, to put them up front, but that was a real... uh, what people thought they were getting, like some sort of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street crossover, at least to see her maybe as a final girl. None of that happened. The address of the written, original Cotton House from the first movie is the address used for the Auditor's House in this movie. And in the first movie, it was originally in Cricklewood, London. There is a great... um. Video on YouTube called Hellraiser Behind the Scenes of All Original Movies. It's like an hour and twenty minutes long, and it's an extensive uh, interview with Gary. So he does behind the scenes. He talks about Revelation. He talks about Judgment. He talks about everything he was involved in the series. He talks about you know his makeup, special effects. He talks about his relationship with Doug Bradley and the problems they had, um, and uh, that affected their friendship in the last couple of movies. So it's excellent. I definitely recommend everyone listen to it if you like Hellraiser. And some have said this film is Hellraiser meets Hostel or Saw or Seven, but to me, the visuals, especially at the beginning, are more Hellraiser meets Rob Zombie. And I actually liked it. I mean, yeah, it's gross out some of it, but um, I, yeah, I definitely liked it. So there are a number of other books, comic books, and merchandise related to Hellraiser. Uh, besides Clive Books, which are, you know, Hellbound Heart, uh, Scarlet Gospels, there's other things. Hellraiser the Tool was released in 2018. And in 2016, Paul Kane authored Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell, which is a crossover between Hellraiser and Sherlock Holmes, so that's interesting. Uh, there's a book called the Hellraiser Films and Their Legacy from 2006. As I already mentioned, there's a two-part documentary available on several sites called Le- Leviathan. And there were at least 16 comic books uh, based on this series, as well as several graphic novels. And Gary had done a fan film called Hellraiser No More Souls, um, in which he played Pinhead himself. So he just did this over a weekend. Lots of people pitched in to help him, and it ended up being an added feature on one of the DVDs. I have not seen it, so I definitely need to look that up. Future developments. There have been several attempts to reboot the series. Clive Barker said he wrote a new script that was given to Dimension in 2014, but it never went anywhere. There was also a crossover, possible crossover between Pinhead and Michael Myers from Halloween, but that never happened, and that's because Miramax, of course, only owned Pinhead, and they couldn't negotiate the rights to uh, that one. Uh, As of May of this year... Gary Barber announced that Spyglass Media Group would be developing a new remake of series of the series to be written and co-produced by David S. Goyer. So I hope that happens. And there's also this year rumor about a Hellraiser TV series in the works. Supposedly, uh, It producer Roy Lee and Ready One producer Dan Farah had joined forces with the owners of the TV rights to the Hellraiser movie, and again... That's uh, Lawrence Koopin, David Salsman, and Eric Gardner, who got them back when um, New World declared bankruptcy in 89. And that's the TV rights, so the movie rights are still owned by Spyglass. Why should you watch these movies? Well, there really weren't any characters or themes like this in horror movies at the time the first movie was released. It was had a heavy emphasis on S and M and deviancy. I think it had a great storyline, and the skinless corpses of Frank and Julia and everyone else are really the stuff of nightmares. As I said before, I think that's one of the best. uh, That makeup is one of the best things about the series. The Cenobites, especially Pinhead, have made a lasting mark on popular culture. Even if people haven't seen any of these movies, they will recognize the character of Pinhead. Kirstie was a great final girl in the first three movies. I wish she had gotten to be in some of the later ones. And the first film is on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. So too bad Clive Barker wasn't able to continue as a writer-producer. Um, I think we would have an outstanding franchise if he'd been given enough money and allowed him to complete his vision and the MPAA hampering, uh, you know, Uh, making them cut stuff so that it wouldn't be rated X. And, of course, the uh, bankruptcy of the studio didn't help either. So, let's see. Recipes. There are, surprisingly, a couple of recipes uh, that are Hellraiser-related. So, I'll just hit the highlights here, and then I'll put them in the notes. So, there is a pinhead sausage head platter on YouTube. And that's pretty fun because it's a styrofoam head and then the little sausage links with the toothpicks are put in the orders of where the pins are on uh pinhead's head and then olives and a few other things are used for the eyes. So that one is really cute and no cooking involved, but I think the if you can get the everything set up right, it's a, it's a really cool visual. So there's that. There is also a American pale ale. Called Hellraiser. I'll give you a link to that from, uh, what is it, brewgr.com. And then there is also Pinhead Pizza, um, which has some little chains <laughs> attached to it too, so not too much you can do with pizza, but it's called Pinhead Pizza. And then lastly, there is called Hellraiser Cinnabite Brownies, and that's from the Homicidal Homemaker, and they are at thehomicidalhomemaker.com. So I will include the recipe for the brownies and then show the designs that they made because you need to have, you know, your little uh, puzzle box designs on there to complete the effect. So that's four recipes related to Hellraiser and Pinhead. And in conclusion, um, I guess the moral of the story is to be careful what you ask for because if it looks too good to be true, it is. You can't have supreme pleasure without also having supreme pain so I think uh yeah I don't think I would open that puzzle box um and if you're keeping track in this franchise we have three detective movies two journalist movies one space station one video game and numerous cheating spouses (coughs) it's interesting how much they like detective movies so if I was recommending this to someone I would say Watch Hellraiser 1, 2, Bloodline, and Judgment, and then you'll get an idea of the mythology of the uh, franchise. Avoid the rest. As we've said, they didn't have anything to do with Hellraiser to start with, so why waste your time watching them? Um, And Revelations and Judgment, of course, were original scripts, but Revelations just doesn't work, Uh, but they... You know, I think they did what they could with the money that they had. Um, so that would be my recommendations: one, two, four, and ten. So let me just give you uh, where you can find us. Uh, we're on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please give us a five-star rating if you like what you're hearing. We're also on Twitter at Food and Fright. Contact us by email at gmail.com or check out our website at Food and Frightening Film Fanatics dot dot so until next week if you see a puzzle box do not open it and if you do you might try to bargain with the cinnabites to take someone else's soul but uh, i'm not sure they're going to go for that so best plan is avoid any puzzle boxes so until then hope you have a great week